This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. If you're listening right now and you have any comments or questions, give us a call. Our number is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So I'm thrilled to welcome my next guest, Phil Libin. He is the co-founder and CEO of All Turtles. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me in the studio, Phil. Hey, thanks for, have, for having me here, Rob. Yeah, no, thrilled to have you here. And we've bumped into each other a number of times over the years before founding All Turtles. Phil was a managing director at General Catalyst, one of the leading venture capital firms in the Bay Area and I think also in Boston. And he's currently a senior advisor there. Before that, he was the CEO and co-founder of Evernote, a leading digital note-keeping service. And in fact, Phil led Evernote to become one of the very first unicorn companies, reaching a billion-dollar valuation in 2012 and has over 200 million users worldwide today. I think I was one of the first people to roll my eyes at being called a unicorn. I think yeah, that, that and you have another right. opportunity to do it as well right Yeah, now. more, more eye-rolling. Yeah. No, but it's pretty amazing how that, that name, that word, has worked its way into the popular lexicon. Yeah, and it sort of started out, I think, being ironic or sarcastic or something, and then very quickly shed that and just became a thing that people said. Yeah, I still, I, I still kind of find it sort of a weird, a weird concept. Yeah, so before we get into all turtles, would love to hear your background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Well, uh, I was born in, uh, in Russia, in a city that used to be called Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, uh, and uh, didn't really do much until I was eight years old, and at which point uh, my family and I came over to the U.S., moved to New York, uh, and kind of grew up in New York and Boston, uh, studied computer science at Boston University, started my first few companies there. Evernote was my third startup at the time, so I kind of realized that I couldn't hold down a real job at a, at a young age and, uh, so and were your had to parents, do my own thing. Were your parents entrepreneurs? Uh, no, my parents are both professional musicians. Wow. Uh, my my father was a pianist, a, a, a violinist, and my mother's a pianist. Uh, yes, yeah, so they were professional classical musicians and from the Soviet days, uh, which uh, isn't isn't a career that they got to carry forward uh, in the U.S. So where where did you get the entrepreneurial bug? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I never really thought of myself. I never really self-identified as an entrepreneur. I think that's something that like other people started saying about me and I kind of thought yeah I, I guess that makes sense uh, I was always just trying to avoid boredom uh, and I hadn't found a job that somebody else gave me that that wasn't boring and so I just kind of started from again a pretty pretty early age trying to figure out what to do myself and, and what was that first thing you figured out to do yourself well my first my first sort of company was in high school um, uh, it was called, uh, me and, and, and a high school friend of mine uh, started, and I think we called it Perseus Data Systems because we went through the Deities and Demigods book from Dungeons and Dragons. To find out what's available, or yeah. it was just your favorite Oh, this was like way before. Character. Know, yeah, it was just like, it was, a, it was you know, named after the Greek, you know, hero. Uh, we just picked names that sounded good. And we, uh, we just assembled PCs. We like bought PC parts from mail order catalogs in Taiwan. This, was, this would have been in the, like the late 80s. Uh, and assembled PCs and, you know, sold them to local businesses and then did that for, I don't know, like nine months, maybe 12 months. And that was the first company I actually sold. I, I, I sold my share of it for 500 bucks. So it was, you know, 500. Who'd you bucks. sell it to? Your co-founder? No, like another another dude. Okay. <laughs> and that was like the summer before that I'd worked at Carvel Ice Cream. So that was like, you know, I made $500, you know which was the same amount as I'd made all previous summers. That seemed like a big deal. But it's interesting. You actually learn about what equity is about when you sell your share of a business. Yeah, you know, learn about a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, like, driving up and down the New Jersey Turnpike with, like, a trunk full of, you know, computers and, yeah, I mean, just many important life lessons. So you must have been, what, 16, 17? Yeah, 17, I think, something okay. like that. Uh, and then, uh, and then kind of was working as a programmer as a consultant kind of all you know from that on and then started my first real company uh a few years out of college it was called engine five that was in, in boston engine five where'd that five. number come from because it sounds like you moved on from the dungeons and dragons handbook yeah because there was supposed to be five of us originally uh so there was five people working at the same company we were all um we were all working at this company in boston uh which is called atg art technology group which is kind of this legendary early internet company and um 
I think I was like employee number 15 or 17 there or something. And um, there was five of us and we decided after a year or two, to, hey, what would it be like if we wanted to start our own company? And then two of them chickened out. So it was only three at the end, but we were already. We were already <laughs> but you already the had the name day. Engine 5. Exactly. We so it was Engine5.com. Engine5.com. Yeah, back when you can like type something in and get it. And get it. Get the dot okay. com. Uh, and yeah, we decided not to re register the domain name and it kind of sounded good. So we had a whole like fire engine theme. You know, okay. Going. Uh, and then ran that for two years, I think, um, which was a lot of fun and a lot of really hard work. And learned a bunch of lessons from that and then got really lucky, sold that company about 20 minutes before the original dot-com crash in 2000. What kind of outcome was that? Well, I mean, it was good uh, for us. You know, we had no investors because we literally didn't know that there was such a thing as investors. Like, we were all programmers. <laughs> and, like, no one told me. Like, I thought investors were like stockbrokers. Like, I'd never, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with the concept of you know, VCs or private equity investors. Uh, so we just started working entirely self-funded. We're profitable from the first day. Uh, and then we sold the company for $26 million, which, you know, in Silicon Valley sort of 2018 standards wasn't much, but it was absolutely life-changing. And that split three us. ways? Yeah, three plus, you know, a few more. Okay. Like, you know, there was, I think it was like the whole, the entire team was up to like seven, 17 people or something when we sold it, but, but yeah. Uh, and it was, it was absolutely life-changing. Like it was the greatest thing ever. It, it basically, you know, it gave us the freedom to know that even though none of us had made enough money where like we would never have to work, not like that was actually desirable anyway. Yeah. You know, it gave us the freedom to know that we would never have to have a shitty job again. Like we would yeah. never have to work on something that we didn't want to work on. And that's such an amazing gift. It's like so lucky to have that, that basically everything else that, that I've been able to do, it, you know, it's because of that, because of that freedom. And there was a, you know, hard work, but also a very large element of luck. So was Evernote the next startup after that? Nope. We stayed. Uh, so we were acquired by this big company called Vignette, uh, which was a big content management company in Austin at the time. Spent about two years there and then um, got out of that uh, and started our next company a month after September 11th. So it was um, October 11th of 2001. I think everyone then was still sort of in this state of shock and you know, wanting to do something more meaningful. Like the stuff we had worked on before was, you know, e-commerce, collaborative filtering, shopping carts, and all that stuff seemed trivial at the time, you know, uh, a month after September 11th. So we uh, we met up with uh, this this co-founder, this uh, famous professor, Professor Silvio Macaulay uh, out of MIT, um, you know, famous cryptographer, and started a company around some of his inventions to basically change the way that a lot of security would be done, both physical security and digital security. Uh, and yeah, ran that for six, seven, eight years. And what was that company called? It's called Core Street. Core Street. Core Street, which okay. we named by combining words uh, from the dictionary file uh, until, you know, and then running them against the domain, seeing, seeing what was available. So it was like, yeah. what, what combinations of words can we like automatically run through the Unix dictionary file and then run through who is to see what was available? Core Street. And where'd you out. base it? Did you base it in San Francisco? No, was I was it down in, in the Boston. valley? It was, it was in Boston. Boston. Yeah. All this in Boston. All this was in okay. Boston. Uh, and we thought, you know, we want to build a product. A previous company, Engine 5, was, we ha kind of had a product, but really it was mostly like professional services and consulting. And so we thought, okay, next time around we need to build a product because that's building, you know, real value. Yeah. And so we did this, uh, we did this product that was doing security stuff. Uh, and at that point we thought, Security you know, stuff? What's security <laughs> stuff? Uh, it was, uh, we were doing, uh, Authentication and validation using uh, PKI, public key infrastructure, which was basically a way to get rid of usernames and passwords unless you log into things securely and get into you know physical locations and, and, and virtual locations securely. And we kind of thought... Oh, so to open doors as well as online Yeah, physically access. and metaphorically, yeah. yeah. We had like smart locks that we would work with big lock companies. So like everything I need to know about like lock picking, I learned from that. But at the same time, we would do like single sign-on and all that stuff. This was when the government was uh, issuing a lot of like smart cards, um, you know, smart IDs, uh, and we, had, you know, we thought that everyone would care about security, kind of post nine eleven, and it turned out that like no, even after nine eleven, like the only people who actually cared about it was governments and big banks. So the product wound up being you know a product that we sold to large government agencies and big banks, which was you know important, but not the most exciting thing in the universe. How big did the company get to? That one got to maybe 40-ish people, maybe 40, 45 people by the time we sold it. And we sold that to, um, to, to another public company. And then we were sitting around thinking, okay, now what? 
and you're sitting around in Boston. Sitting around in Boston. You've already had the exit. Where are you literally sitting? We were like in a coffee shop or no, an we were, apartment. We were, we were or? still at the office. Uh, we we're still at the office, kind of figuring it out. We, you know, we had decided to kind of transition out and sell it at sort of the same time. So it was still like winding down that one, selling it, which is also. It was roughly the same size outcome as before, but this time around we did have investors. So, like in terms of like personal impact, even though it was the same dollar amount, it made much less a difference. Um, and yeah, we were sitting around in the office thinking about like what's next, and we thought, okay, well, we want to build a product. We want to have the same core team, same same basic co-founders. Uh, and um, but we want to do something for ourselves. We, we kind of got tired of thinking about what does the customer want, because it's you know it's exhausting especially when the customer is so distant, like it's a big bank or it's a big company. So you started just, thinking about what you wanted? What do we want? Okay. And we had a specific hypothesis about that. We kind of thought, well, you know, this was back in 2007. We thought the world is getting a lot smaller because of social media, because of, you know, other stuff. And so the most important thing is to have a really high quality product because if you have a really high quality product, then everyone's going to talk about it and be able to download it. And like all of the other logistical things that used to be a big deal aren't as important anymore. Uh, and I kind of thought, um, and this is right around the time that the iPhone was either launched or was about to be right launched, before, right? Yeah, right okay. before. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, we'd had smartphones already from pre, you know, windows phones and that kind of stuff, blackberries. Uh, and we thought the best way to reach a, make a high quality product is to be able to iterate on it a whole bunch. And at our previous company at Core Street, the iteration cycles were super long because, you know. Like, well, you had to make sure the security worked. Yeah, exactly. And, and wait, like, you know, we would deploy it and then wait 18 months to get feedback from, you know, the Pentagon and then make a new version. So we thought, okay, if you need 10,000 iterations to make a great product, then each iteration is like 18 months. It's like 15,000 years. We don't have that kind of time. Yeah. But if we made something for ourselves, we're like, we, like we were the target customer. Could be weekly. Could would, be daily. Yeah, daily or every 20 minutes. Uh, so that that was the idea. So we kind of sat around thinking, what do we want to do? And we 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 you know tried a few different ideas and then landed on where. Sounds we like you have a very tight bond with these co-founders. But before we get into that, if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on SiriusXM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Phil Libin. He is the co-founder and CEO of All Turtles, and a serial entrepreneur from Saint Petersburg, Russia. So. Back to the team, this core team of people. Mm -hmm. Why was there such a close relationship to want to work on companies together? Why, why did, how does that happen? Well, you know, I actually got really good advice on this much later um, from Steve Ballmer, <coughs> uh, kind of of all people, uh, who like after I was already at Evernote for a few years, I, uh, I ran into Steve Ballmer randomly like at some conference we were both speaking at in Korea, and uh, he was super generous with his time and kind of asked him a bunch of questions. And... Among the many great pieces of advice I got from him, one was that he kind of said, look, um, you know, everyone gets like around 100 people in their life that are like the load-bearing people that you wind up like doing everything with. And, mm. and not everyone gets 100. Some but the supportive, the ones that really support you and you really can matter. depend on and you can help. Yeah. And he said, and you keep going back to the same people. And, and, and some of these people you wind up working with and some of these people you don't. And honestly, like a bunch of them you like you already burned through by the time you get out of college and then you don't get you know you don't get those slots back so you should try to be mindful about like who are the load bearing important people in your life and try to like maintain those relationships and that really resonated with me because I'm I think I'm pretty introverted and I find meeting new people to be like very tiring and so we sort of like hey this is a good thing going we got a good group with efficient communication so well, it's very not? logical right it seems to be right why not do as much as possible were there some people that were in that group that kind of fell by the wayside or went a separate way or yeah yes but you know it's it's actually even to like actually today uh one of the one of my co-founders of the original company and the second company who i've stayed friends with for a very long time but um you know we haven't done anything professionally together now in whatever 15 years or more actually had a project to do reached out to him at random today said hey crazy idea you want to do this thing together and he was like yeah that sounds great so actually like even people who kind of like that we're maybe inactive with for a while, like it all, it all comes around, right? And, uh, um, and, and I've always tried to kind of be mindful of that. And it's really in the past few years that I've also realized that that actually has a lot of shortcomings. Like that approach is great for certain things and really terrible for certain other things. And so you need to kind of balance it out. So in the past, I never really attempted to very actively, significantly expand the network to do important things with people that I don't know. But 
Do you now? I do now, yeah. I think the Evernote experience has kind of taught me that the importance of that, and then the whole point of Alt Turtles is to, is to do a lot of that. Sure. You know, we'll come to Alt Turtles because I have a bunch of questions around that. So you're in Boston, mm -hmm. and you have found a, uh, an acquirer for Core Street, mm -hmm. and you're coming up with this new idea, and you talked about these principles you had. What, what was the idea? Is that what became Evernote? Yeah, so basically we said our only requirement is we want to make something that we love because we want to be the target audience. So what do we love? And so we sat around co-founders and I think I said, uh, you know, I love video games, I'm a big video game player. Maybe we should make a video game. And then we said, well, but, you know, I already have like a big stack of video games on my desk. That was back when, you know, they would come in a box. Yeah, yeah, CD-ROMs. Yeah, I already have a big stack of CD-ROMs sitting on my desk that I don't have time to play. Like maybe the world doesn't need more video games. So like what else can we do? And then somebody said, uh, well, you know, a lot of these new like social media uh, networks are like really interesting. Maybe we should make a social media network. And I said, ah, it's 2007 and there's already MySpace and no one can beat MySpace. I think we're just like too late to that. So we decided not to do a social media platform. I said, well, what about like, we all like being productive. We all like, like this feeling of being smart and organized, even though if we're not actually organized. And the current state of productivity software back then, like, was really archaic. Like it was already like Microsoft Office and had been for 20 years already and like hadn't really advanced and none of it worked on these new smartphones that we liked. And so we thought, okay, what if we like, what if we made the new definition of what does it mean to be productive uh, for a new generation of people? And, and, and that was the idea that we started working on. So we called that project Ribbon, uh, like you tie a ribbon around your finger to, to help you remember stuff, started kicking it around. And then very quickly I was introduced, within a few weeks of that I was introduced uh, by a mutual friend to this guy named Stepan Pachikov, who is this brilliant um, uh, Russian-American like entrepreneur, inventor, businessman. He was in California, we were in Boston. And he had actually run a group of people that Apple bought like from Russia, from the Soviet Union in the late 80s to work on the Apple Newton, which oh, was wow. like, the first generation you know, so really understood tablet. the idea of a PDA and how does it work and what are and, the and they built opportunities. Like, yeah, all like the handwriting recognition, like the, the crazy stuff about the Newton that was like 20 years ahead of a time. It was like that team and that team had stayed together as well. And they were working on... It's like what happened in parallel to Magic Leap. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Not Magic Leap. Uh, General Magic. General Magic. That's what exactly. I'm thinking yeah. of. Not Magic Leap. General Magic. And they basically worked on like every generation of like handwriting recognition, image recognition, tablets, memory for a while. And they had a team of people in California working on basically a very comparable idea. Uh, and so Stepan and I flew to California, I got together with Stepan, and we decided to kind of merge the two the two teams rather than kind of having two startups compete. So we decided to merge them. So and he was out in California at the time? He was in California with his team. Were you having a lot of phone calls in that time frame? And then you finally got on a plane to go out and visit? It or? was pretty fast, basically. I think we had like one phone call and then I'm like, I'll, I'll come over and see you. And huh. we just hit it off. And uh, yeah, so we decided to merge the two teams. Uh, he already had it. He already had a corporate entity. Wow. It was called Evernote. That's a big move early in a startup's life. Yeah, you know, I got like, I, my advice from 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 my dad uh, was, uh, I, re I remember this very well. He gave me, he said, look, whenever something seems too good to be true, just jump in and don't ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I've tried to apply that a lot because like pretty often it goes. Is that kind of how he felt when he came to the United States? Well, it must have been, right? Because like, yeah. think about that, right? Time like, to leave Russia. Oh, it's too good. To, well, why not? Yeah, I'll upend an entire, you know, professional prestigious career as you know, as a classical musician was just kind of a big deal for my parents in their, you know, mid thirties already and like moved to a place where they didn't speak the language, have any connections. Like, yeah, I think I think that must be part of the philosophy. So I've tried to embrace that and you know, sometimes it goes horribly wrong, but 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 fine, right? Like, so you, so you jumped those. in with how many of your co founders? There was like five or six of us and then Stepan had like maybe ten people and then like so basically like from the beginning of the new entity in 2000, late 2007, we were probably already at like 15, 20 people. And then, yeah, and then we just went. And you loaded up your U-Hauls and came on out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, I wanted to be in Silicon Valley for my next one. Like, that was always kind of a, a mission. And then uh, I met uh, Esther Dyson and Max Lefchin, who were on Stepan's board at the time. And so I met with them, and I was just kind of blown away that these were these, like, legendary people. Right. Uh, Founder of PayPal. and Yeah. How'd you connect with them? Uh, because... They were on Stepan. Yeah, ah, yeah. So Stepan okay. was like Stepan was uh, is a super prominent. He was like early days of, you know, like the uh, opening up of like the like 
Perestroika, Glasnost, like back when these were all the concepts of like the Soviet Union falling apart, like he was an active figure in like the computing space there. He was in the U.S. Like he was kind of well known in, the, in that generation. And Max is an immigrant also, right? Max yeah, yeah. Max is from Ukraine. Uh, a lot of the original Evernote engineers and people also had some some kind of immigrant roots or Russian roots. Uh, I, I, you know, I did as well, although I never like I never identified with that community. Uh, and yeah, we hit it off and we decided let's just jump in and do it together. So we kind of re reformed, reformed the company in late 2007. The iPhone came out. I stood in line for four hours to get the iPhone. I kind of knew when I first held the iPhone in my hands. Like this is the, the magic Storm, platform. Like, this is it. This is it. This is it. Yeah. And then like it was like I had that experience of holding it in my hand and then like seeing the next five years, like seeing all of the stuff all of the traffic lights go green and be like, I, I, know, I know what's going to happen. <laughs> Time to hit the gas. Yeah. Because you don't know when you see the five traffic lights, you know they're going to be on. Yeah. And you know one in there is going to turn yellow, so you better hit the gas. Yeah, exactly. And I've, had, I've only had that experience a couple of times in my life where it's like, there's like, yeah, you can, it's like a Hollywood scene where you see all the traffic lights go green and you're like, yeah, not, now you better slam on the gas because it's exactly like this doesn't happen very often. And, and one of those was, was holding the first iPhone and being like, yeah, this thing right now and then you started writing code and yeah yeah we hired more people we wrote code we tried to raise money um you know l luckily it was both for myself and for stepan like it wasn't our first company we'd had some exits before so we were able to like literally through friends and family get you know some more money than people usually can i think we raised the first few million dollars just from you know literally friends and family and then, uh, yeah, almost went out of business many times trying to raise money, uh, but got through it. And then, yeah. Things, yeah. Things and it's a product right. that a lot of people depended on for a long time and really enjoyed and yeah, were I mean, quite passionate about. Uh, still do, hopefully. I mean, I still yeah. use it all the time. I haven't had, I haven't really had any formal involvement in about three years with the company, but I, you know, I remain a giant fan and I live my life in it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if you remember our first meeting when I came by Evernote and you gave me the pitch and then you explained how over time mm -hmm. it becomes more and more valuable. There is a bit of a dip yeah. almost, I don't know, like a year or two afterwards. And then you go back for something three years later, four years later, five years later, mm -hmm. and the value would actually increase yeah. of whatever it was that you were recording. Yeah, we had this like, we had this three graph business. We had this basically three graph pitch deck. Yeah, like and I think it was chart. like seven or eight years ago that we talked about this. Yeah, maybe, maybe longer. Yeah, probably 2010, 2011. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I think it was right when we moved into Mountain View. Right. Um, yeah, because we were like next door neighbors. A building that's no longer there, as yeah, it turns out. since demolished. Yeah, but uh, anyways, you were, you were talking about the, the slides. Yeah, so we basically, so in the beginning, we were terrible at raising money and pitching it and explaining it. It was like the world's worst pitch. Like I would come in, you know, to a VC fund and I would say, Hey, I'm Phil Libin. You know, you've never heard of me. Even though I had like started and sold two companies, it was in Boston, so it doesn't really count over here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, our idea is we're going to let you use computers and like PDAs and smartphones to write stuff down. And we're going to give it away mostly for free. You know, and we need $10 million. And like that was kind of the pitch. Sometimes VCs would be polite enough to like ask what their competition was. To which I would say, like, well, you know, every single doesn't exist yet. Well, no, it's the exact opposite. It was like every single computer or device that's ever come out already has a pretty good free note-taking app. So our competition is like already infinite. <laughs> oh, jeez. So yeah, it's like it the anti-pitch. Yeah, it was literally was. It wasn't great. And then um, uh, in spite of that, we we were able to get a little bit of money, although it was it was very rough for a while. But then, actually, it's interesting. All of our funding came from people who were fans of the early product. 100% of it. Like, some of it came from us. Before and it's there was a, a very product. strong, strong fan base yeah. that Evernote has. Yeah. And the funding came, like, the first few million dollars that wasn't coming from, like, me and Stepan and just direct family members was coming from, like, people who were just fans of the product who happened to have money. Um, because, yeah, because the story was, was not, not great. And then after about a year, we had some traction, and we were, we, there was this aha moment where... Um, I figured out how to present that traction on these three slides. And then from then on, we had infinite term sheets and you know high valuations, and it just kind of went. So yeah, it was those three slides that, like, that, that made the difference. So how did you make the transition over to what people like to refer to as the dark side? Well, um, so I was at Evernote for about nine years. Uh, and um, 
you know, I'd always said kind of from the beginning uh, in this line that I use all the time, which is we're trying to build a hundred year startup. And I talked about a hundred year startup, which meant like we wanted to build a company that'd be around for a hundred years, but that would still be a startup in a hundred years that would like still make innovative things that people loved. And this was obviously, you know, aspirational. And I thought as that, like one of the things that it forces, that forced us to do was to think about making something that, that was built to last, that was robust. Like there was no exit strategy. Like this was our life's work. Obviously there was like an exit for investors, but like for us, we were talking about, you know, how do we make this permanent? Yeah, a product that our kids will know about and yeah. their kids will know about yeah. something, and want to work with. Something significant. Use. And so as part of that, I always said like, I'm not going to be the CEO for a hundred years because, you know, I don't have that kind of patience. Uh, so I, like, I always talked about how it was my job, maybe my most important job to like find a better CEO. And I started talking about that, like on, in my first year, but I never, like, I would say it, but I never thought about the when, like, I, I never thought about like, what do I mean in 20 years? Do I mean in six months? I had no idea. Uh, and then there was a time where basically after we got to a few hundred people where, um, I was at a dinner and I sat next to, um, uh, I sat next to a friend of mine, um, actually Nick uh, from from GoPro, one of the founders of GoPro. Uh, I sat next to him and he said, uh, "Hey, how are you doing? Are you still are you still having fun?" And I said, "Like, well, honestly, Nick, like, I don't know if it's fun. You know, it's fulfilling, but I don't know how it's having fun." And he gave me the best advice I think ever, which he's like, "Oh, like, you're at a point. That, ever know this was already like 2000, probably 15. So we were, you know, this was post the unicorn stage." And he's like, "You shouldn't be doing anything that you're not having fun at." Because <laughs> if you're not having fun, it probably means it's because you're not that good at it. And the company at this point deserves to have a CEO who's really into it and is really good at it. So, like, if this was a few years ago, like, yeah, you're the best person that you could have gotten. But at this point, you're, what you're basically signaling is, like, there should be someone better. And you now have the resources to get someone better. So figure out how to get someone else to do all the stuff that you're not enjoying. And then you should do the stuff that you're enjoying because that that's the stuff that you're high impact for. And I was like, holy shit, that's, that's, that's that makes direct sense. feedback. So, yeah, so I basically went to the board and said, hey, like, you know, we should, we should think about a succession plan. And so we originally, the original plan was to find a president that would, we would kind of hire a president. I would give away, I would, I would sort of, I would become, I would stay the CEO for a year or so, you know, let the president run the day-to-day -day operations. And then, you know, assuming that was successful, we would have that person transition to be the CEO. Um, spend about a year looking for the right person. Turned out in that process that the people who were interested in being CEO right away were just much more impressive than the people that were interested in being president. Like it's it turns out it's much harder to hire like a number two than than the top person, you, which makes sense in hindsight. So then made the decision. Okay, fine. Let's just let's let's find a CEO. Um, and uh, my plan was, well, we bring on a CEO. I'll stay on as kind of chairman and have like important product thoughts. I was kind of trying to model it after like Reed and Jeff at at, at LinkedIn. But I knew there was like a fifty percent chance that that wouldn't work out because basically once there's a CEO, like you got to see what he or she is going to do and maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. So I kind of thought I would like to stay deeply involved, but I acknowledge that that may just feel too weird. Um, so we brought on uh, uh, Chris uh, and um, uh, yeah, you know, a few months into it, it basically became obvious that like me hovering around was like having the visibility, but not the authority was like way too painful, both for me and weird for him. So we kind of decided after about a year that the yeah, I should just be, you know, I should just be hands off and let, let the new team run it, uh, which was intuitively the right decision intellectually, but, you know, emotionally difficult. But that's that's what life is. Well, I think this is a, a good point for us to take a short break. When we come back, what we'll do is we'll talk about your transition into venture capital mm -hmm. and definitely want to talk all about all turtles and what you're doing now. Yeah. I can tell from the shirt you're wearing, you love branding. So Definitely want to talk about branding. For nine a bit. years, all I ever wore was a jacket and an Evernote shirt. So yeah, had, so had to get new shirts. We'll we'll continue our conversation in just a few minutes. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Phil Libin. He is the co-founder and CEO of All Turtles. And when we left off before the break, we were talking about his path to Silicon Valley via the East Coast of the U.S., Boston and New York, from St. Petersburg, Russia. So just before we left off, we were talking about, I was asking you about your transition to the dark side. Mm. And we talked about the new CEO that came in at Evernote and 
freed up time for you. And how did you end up at General Catalyst? Well, so I decided, um, you know, as as we were looking for uh, someone to replace me as CEO, that I wasn't going to make any plans about what I would do next because I thought, you know, I don't want to check out. I want to like give it everything. So I specifically refused to like figure out what what would be quote unquote next until after Chris was on board. And then uh, I started thinking about it. You know, I had planned to take some time off that has not worked ever, which is, <laughs> I keep trying to learn that lesson. Like, no, no, really, like take a few days off. It never works. Um, uh, and then I started getting a bunch of calls from from VCs. And I wasn't particularly interested in being a, a, a VC, or an investor. I never thought of myself primarily as an investor. Um, but then um, I got a call from from General Cattle, so I knew a little bit back from from my days in, in Boston. Uh, but I was talking to the West Coast team, to to Hemant and to uh, and to Nico and to the people here and Steve. Uh, and um, their pitch was basically, "Hey, uh, like I, I was thinking, what I want to do is I don't want to work on just one thing anymore." Um, I want to work on several things, but I want to work on like several things, not not a hundred things. I don't just want to write checks. I want to be very hands on with a you know manageable number of products. And did you know them before? I knew the Boston folks. I knew like Larry Bond and Joel uh, Cutler. Um, uh, I think we pitched them like a couple of companies. So it was new for you getting to know him on and the West Coast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, crowd. Yeah, it was new for me. Uh, and I was just super impressed with with Hamant, with Steve Harrod, with 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 Nico. They were just a great team. And for people that wonder about this and joining a, a venture firm, would you go to their offices or would you meet in coffee shops or how would you guys have these conversations to get to know each other better? Uh, I mean, I got called by a recruiter that they were using, uh, and so we had a, we had like a phone conversation. And then I'm generally a big fan of you know go in person as quickly as possible because. I got to have coffee anyway. I may as well have it with an interesting person. And, you know, worst case scenario, we learn something and that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. So we just got together in person a few times. Uh, and um, I said, well, I think what I want to do is, is to, like, hatch a few companies, not one, but a few. And their pitch to me was, yeah, just come, come do that at General Catalyst because it's the best of both worlds. You can you can do that as a, as a large platform. You can write checks. You can start things. You can do both. And, you know, I had my, that, that advice from my dad kicked in again, which is like, hey, this sounds too good to be true. <laughs> jump right in. I'll jump ask in. Any questions yeah. that's, that's, and the firm that's has a great strategy. reputation. The firm's amazing and, 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 and gotten, like, really up-leveled over the past, uh, you know, over the past couple of years. Like, it's, it's an honor to, to be part of it and to have been a part of it and to continue a relationship. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of thought, well, I'm going to, like, I don't really know much about, I, I've done angel investing. I don't really know much about, like, bigger checks, and I'm not that interested in it, but seemed like a good opportunity. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, I jumped in um, and probably within the first year started working on what would become All Turtles. Like this idea that like, well, there's got to be a more efficient way to like make innovative products. And so should it be like a inside, you know, something like a hatchery inside of the fund or whatever? And we kind of kicked around a bunch of ideas with, with the team there. And I started an initiative that we were codenaming Found Robot Company. Found, found robot found robot company um i don't know why just like unusual names and then uh, got together with 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 a few people started working on some stuff uh and, and were then... you working out of general catalyst offices on yeah. this yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. You, you took over a conference room and you'd meet with people and you'd have a whiteboard and you're working through ideas and mm -hmm. yeah and and you know i'd made some 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 early stage investments uh this was right as kind of the first generation of, you know, bots and NLP and AI was coming out. I was kind of forming some investment hypotheses about that. Uh, and then um, it was just getting more and more ambitious. And, you know, pretty quickly it became obvious that, like, it was it was more ambitious than what should be done inside of a fund. It should be, you know, adjacent to it, not, not part of it. Uh, and, um, you know, I was kind of on the fence about whether or not I wanted to run a company again. You know, being a CEO is is it's tough. Like it's a, it's a difficult process and, you know, I had just done it. Uh, but then on election night of 2016 is when kind of finally decided, okay, let's pull the trigger on it. Let's make it an independent thing. And, you know, got on the phone with people that I've been talking to and said, let's, let's do this for real. So you decided to project. do it full time outside of general catalyst. Yeah. Full time, not as a side project. Uh, and, you know, talk to, yeah, like just, Spent a few months getting that set up, and then we launched officially in June of 2017. So we kind of decided to do it to start kind of spinning out of GC and doing it as independent. So thing. could you describe the product for our audience? All turtles. All turtles. So uh, we're we're basically a multi-product startup. 
So the idea is every other time I've done a startup, we kind of start with you know one product idea and we do that. And I just think that's really inefficient. Um, what if there's like a better way to make innovative products? So we make uh, AI products, practical AI products, but instead of starting with one, we're sort of starting with, with several. We have 15 that we're currently working on. And instead of doing it in one location, we're sort of doing it all over the world. So we're currently in San Francisco, Tokyo and Paris, we're opening up in other countries. So it's basically a startup that starts big rather than starting small. Uh, and the, the, the bet is um, we can make high impact products uh, in a more efficient, more, more sensible way than a typical startup. And do model. you make your own products or do you make them for other people and then charge for that? We make our own products. Uh, and, uh, but the way that we get, we work with multiple teams. So we get ideas and people, sometimes our own ideas, sometimes we work with founders. So we have a pretty wide aperture about what kinds of stuff we're working, but we're not consultants. We don't like charge money to make something. We make things that we think are great ideas that are high impact that can be made. We have our criteria, but we, we get those ideas and teams from a few different sources. And then we have, we, we spend our own money to make them, but we also work with external investors. The, the model that we're trying to copy, shamelessly, is Netflix. Basically, uh, you know, until like 20 years ago, Hollywood was a very hit-driven industry. It was all basically worldwide concentrated within a few square miles of, you know, Los Angeles. It was a terrible asset class. Like 20 years ago, if you were an outside investor, you would not want to invest in Hollywood. Like all the value was captured by a bunch of insiders. You know, overall, it like lost money. It was fairly conservative. It was like either, either a hit or bust, all that stuff. And then things like Pixar and HBO and Netflix came along and said, no, we're going like, to make things professionally. We're going to industrialize the process. We're going to do it in a disciplined way. We're going to make it. We're going to distribute things. We're going to be full stack. And they completely revolutionized the industry. And so like right now, we're kind of living through the golden age of content. Like the quality of TV shows and movies is better than it's ever been. Uniformly high. Yeah. Higher the, anyways. The business models are much stronger. Like Netflix is worth more than I think all of the you know old big, big name studios put together at this point because they professionalized it. They took it out of the hands of a hundred insiders and made it run like a good professional structure. And most importantly, it's now made all over the world. There are Netflix studios making content in like many different countries, which never used to be the case. Um, and so we want to do that. Basically, we want to just like Netflix, we want to attract the best people in our industry. We want to make very innovative products on a schedule, on a budget with discipline. We want to distribute those products. We want to, we want to go full cycle on that. So just like Netflix, if we don't make TV shows and movies, we make tech products. So we basically want to do to the technology industry what Netflix did to the entertainment industry. And frankly, I think the technology industry is you know, more important than the entertainment industry. So hopefully we have an even bigger impact. So when you think about Netflix and you think about this, you think of House of Cards. Mm-hmm. What's your house of cards? So what is your first product? What are a few example products that you can talk about? It's funny. Uh, I didn't mean that in a way that it comes across. Of, well, hey, All Turtles is a house of cards. No, 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 no. But, I, 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 that's not how I took it. Uh, it, it. I hadn't thought of that, of that specific analogy. <laughs> Tell me about because, your house of cards. Because probably our first, uh, our first like, launch product, we have, we have a few that are, that are kind of publicly visible. The first one that's like, that, that very much went through the process that we wanted to go through, where it's like, you know, very, very hands-on, like our thing, is a product called Spot, which uh, we've had in public beta for a while. Uh, we're officially launching it, I think, in a few weeks. But, you know, it's out there on the web now. And we, we, it's, we already have revenue. We already have customers. It's a perfect example of what we want to do. Uh, it's an AI for uh, workplace harassment and discrimination reporting which is kind of why I smirked about the House of Cards reference. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's kind of a great example. It's like the, the, the problem that it tries to solve, and 100% of everything we work on has to solve a very specific problem, uh, is the vast majority of harassment discrimination at work goes unreported because it sucks reporting it. It sucks for, the, for everyone, for the company, for the person, for, for, for everyone. And what, well, how this works instead is you, you, if you feel like you've experienced or witnessed any kind of harassment discrimination, you go to talktospot.com, anyone can go there, anyone can use it, it's free. You walk through an AI process, basically, a, you know, a kind of an advanced bot, but you know, a combination of like a chat bot and, and, and some UI that walks you through what's known as a cognitive interview process, which is this technique developed over the past few decades, mostly for police departments as a comfortable way to interview witnesses. So it's a psychological technique designed to, a way to talk to people to make them comfortable to talk about emotionally unpleasant experiences 
in a way that's as accurate as possible. That doesn't inject false memories. It doesn't inject bias. Um, and so what we've done is we've taken this technique, uh, we've adapted it using one of the co-founders of this of this effort is a uh, uh, Dr. Julia Shaw, who's uh, an expert in this. She's a professor in London. She's written a couple of books about the subject. Adopted it to being to AI. The actual AI is actually not all that sophisticated because the whole point is like it's not pretending to be human. Like it's pretty basic. It walks you through this process. The fact that it's not human is a feature. That's the whole point is it's better because it's, you know it's not judging you. It has infinite patience. You go through this process. At the end, you basically get a report that is the highest evidentiary value, you know, digitally signed, uh, authenticated version of what happened to you. And then if you want, that's it. You hold on to it. You don't have to do anything. You just get it off your chest. You have a record that you can then use later if you want. We delete it from our servers. That's all that has to happen. Or if you want to take it further, you can then use our system to uh, anonymize it if you want. So we'll help you redact it. And then if you want, we'll submit it on your behalf, either anonymously or not, depending on what you want, to your employer. And then we can kind of track that process. And so all that is free, available to everyone. And that's been around in public beta for a few months now. We've run you know thousands of these interviews. We have lots of reports. And then uh, what, we, what we just started selling to companies is companies who want to encourage this kind of culture, who want to encourage like discussion early on before things become real problems. They can buy the corporate backend, which gives them the ability to respond, you know, to funnel to the right organizations, to, to customize the flow, to respond uh, to any submitted reports, even if they want to preserve anonymity. They basically, you know, the management kind of backend for it. Uh, so, that, so that's the model. It's, it's a great team um, that we, you know, that we put together. We, we worked on it. There's no external capital at this point. We'll probably decide to raise some external capital later. Before so it's we, effectively something you could spin out of all turtles. Everything we work on is meant is is structured under the hood, to be able to be spun out, but not because that's the best option. Because we want to focus on making a great product, and once there's a great product, once we know there's product market fit and there's revenue and everything else, then we can decide. Okay, how do we help it make its full reach its full potential? And that may be we just continue to run it and sell it and book the revenue and have our own sales team, or it might mean we get a bunch of external capital and spin it out as an independent company, or it might mean we allow it to be acquired in a structured way by a larger acquirer. And any of those is totally acceptable. The point is, you know, question the first is, is it a good product yet? And until the answer is yes, we as efficiently as possible make it a good product, which isn't just technology, it's like actual customers. And then once it is a good product, then, okay, how do we maximize the option out? How do we maximize the, the, the impact of it? So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Phil Libin. He is the co-founder and CEO of All Turtles. So it sounds like in some ways you've institutionalized what you've enjoyed doing in your career. Yeah. Working on products, ideas, fleshing them out, and you've had quite a lot of success with some of the companies you work with and Evernote in particular in terms of reaching a huge user base. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, I, I've been lucky a, f a few times and I've, I've been fortunate to have really good teams of people to work with. Uh, and yeah, I want to make that more scalable and more repeatable. So why is it in multiple locations? So why are you in, I believe, San Francisco, Tokyo, and Paris? Yeah, and probably Mexico City next year is most likely the next one. We're kind of figuring that out. And the vision, the goal is to be, uh, in the first 10 years, the goal is to be in 20 of the top 50 world cities. Okay. Um, and they'll be all cranking out products? Yeah, just like Netflix. You know, it's like I, I was just in Taiwan a few weeks ago. And uh, I was in Taiwan, and uh, I saw this, like, three-story tall billboard advertising some some Netflix show that was made in Taiwan, like with Taiwanese actors, you know, some like, you know, the, whatever their top show is over there. And optimized for that market yeah. and culture. And... and that was never, and then, and then a few weeks before that, I was in, in Denmark, and I saw the same thing in Denmark. There's like shows made in, in, you know, in Copenhagen for that market, Netflix. And you would never see this before, right? Like 10 years ago, when I would travel the world, the only big like Hollywood style things I would see would be for like poorly translated American movies. But now what they've done is Netflix comes in, they come into an existing industry. There's already people making stuff. They immediately become the top destination. They're like all the best people come make it with Netflix. They increase the production values. They, they have the discipline. They have higher budgets. They make stuff locally and they distribute it globally though. So like I've got friends, like when I was in Denmark, I was talking to my friend who lives in Stockholm and she was saying, oh, like me and all of my friends love watching these Netflix shows made in Korea. 
So like, yeah, there's a bunch of shows made that Netflix makes in Korea that are like for the Korean market, but since everything is distributed globally... They appeal elsewhere and people can get access to yeah. them. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge market for it to make sense. Yeah, but 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 the market outside of Korea is, is as big as the market inside of Korea, right? Um, so, and this was never the case before. So basically, like, what I really got tired of is this like constantly people asking about startups like well like what's what's magic about silicon valley why is all this work in silicon valley why isn't more of it in tokyo why isn't more of it in mexico city and honestly i think like it's up like if someone wants to say that there's something magic about silicon valley it's sort of up to them to explain exactly what it is and i don't th i don't think it's that much i think what's what's magic about silicon valley is i think we have just like Hollywood did 20 years ago, we've basically set this expectation that the way that you organize yourself around an innovative product is, you know, you make a company, you get you get VC investors, you have to deal with a board of directors, and like we're good at making small companies, and other places in the world are not good at making small companies. Well, you know, one of the things too is you talked a bit openly about you're an introvert by nature. I think it's one of the few places in the world, or maybe the easiest place in the world, to make friends as an introvert. Yeah, exactly. Because um, it's filled with introverts. It, yeah. For all the extroverts that are running around, there are lots of introverts. There are. And, and a lot of other places in the world are less good at that. Uh, but that's only important because we've arbitrarily decided that the first step to making a great product is making a small company. And no other industry works like this. Like if you are a one in a million, literally one in a million, you know, Mozart level musical genius, right? You don't have to make a new. You don't have to make a music company. You just play, and the platforms have been created, like YouTube and others. The platforms have been created where, if you're really that good, the platforms are there. You're going to reach a billion people. You know, if you're one of the top writers in the world, you don't have to make a writing company. You just write. If you're one of the top filmmakers in the world, you don't have to make a movie company. You go and work for HBO or Netflix, and you still have like the prestige and the economic upside, but you make stuff. But if you're one of the top, like one in a million Mozart level genius, you know, product people, before you get to make your product, you have to make a company. Yeah, yeah, Why? yeah. That's silly. So switching gears here, another thing I remember from our first meeting when we got together at Evernote many years ago is it used to weigh a lot more. <laughs> and in fact, you weighed a lot more. I did weigh a lot more. And I remember bumping into you a few years later. Yeah. And when I talked to you, I was like, oh, this is Phil. Yeah. But you look completely different. You've lost a huge amount of weight. Yeah, I lost like 90 pounds. Yeah. And how... How'd you lose? I have to ask, how'd you lose 90 pounds? Because that's a huge, and you've kept it off. I have, which yeah. Which is possibly the hardest part is keeping it off, not just losing it, some it, people say. Yeah, so, and, and that's what I was, that was really the experiment for me is could I, could I keep it off? I knew I could lose it, but the question is could I keep it off? Um, so, yeah, basically, uh, yeah, I was always very overweight since I was, you know, 17 and uh, kind of getting worse and worse. And then I, I made this terrible, terrible plan where I told myself, uh, you know, I'm not going to worry about it until I'm 45. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you now? I'm 46. Okay. <laughs> but so it, but, but I kind of made early. a deal with myself where I'm like, as soon as I turn 45, I'm going to start taking all my health seriously. Yeah. And then, you know, last year, or actually, I guess two years ago now, I was like, eh, my 45th birthday is coming up. And I'm kind of thinking about starting a new company. And like, I kind of have to prove to myself that I can actually trust myself with this. So I decided to take it seriously right before my 45th birthday. Uh, and um, I was with, uh, uh, was having coffee with Loic, Loic Lemur. Uh, and uh, he- This is our mutual friend yeah. who has the, or founded the LeWeb conference, yes. leading yeah. technology conference in Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, that's right. And now he runs a company called Leaders, which we're, we're helping with at All Turtles. Uh, and he, uh, he's like, oh, I'm doing this new thing. I'm, I'm fasting. I'm not eating for three days. And I was like, what? <laughs> he's like, yeah, I'm just, I'm gonna, like, I heard Sounds about this like thing. Sounds like some weird Silicon Valley thing. Yeah, totally. And like the week is the one that gets me into weird Silicon Valley things. Like he's the reason why I started meditating back when that was legally required for all CEOs and VCs, you know, five years ago, whatever. And he's like, yeah, not eating for three days. It's great. And I thought this was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. Uh, and so I went home and like Googled it so that I could like meet Loic, you know, with some evidence and tell him that he's being stupid. This is super bad for you. You got to stop doing this. And so I started reading about it. And as I actually like, got into the science, started reading about it, I thought like, oh, actually, wow, this surprisingly makes sense. Like I kind of understand what's yeah, going on. Yeah, because I'm guessing back when you were, w humans were running around on the savannah with spears. 
there's there be a, times when they might not eat. Yeah, there's a lot of like evolutionary biology, which I'm usually suspicious of those justifications because a lot of those are like just so stories. Like you could you can tie anything back to our like happy caveman days. <laughs> uh, it's not necessarily that rigorous, but subconscious everything. Yeah, okay. but like but like the more I looked into it, the more I'm like, hey, this kind of makes sense, and so I thought I would try it just to see because then I just become it became intellectually interested, and then I tried it, so I, I just didn't eat anything for three days. And on the first day, I was and like, literally, it's just drink water. Yeah, water and like black coffee, no calories. Oh, uh, you can still have coffee. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah. So on the first day, I was like, oh my God, I am starving. I'm going to die. This feels terrible. Woke up on the second day. This feels even worse. It's unimaginable. Like, <laughs> woke up on the morning of the third day, and I'm like, this is the best I've ever felt in my life. Wow. Like, I woke up on the morning of the third day, and I'm like wow, this feels like amazing. And then, you know, then I ate like at the end of the third day and then started reading more into it and started getting more into it. So basically, yeah, I've been, I've been doing a bunch of research. How did food taste at the end of the third day? Really good. Uh, and Do you not... remember what you had that first meal back? No. It's a good question. Was it meat? Was it a salad? Was it yeah, yeah. deep fried chicken? I, I, I do remember because I was reading a bunch of stuff about how you're supposed to break a fast, which I think is all nonsense now. But, but you know, I was very careful. So I think I had like some kimchi to like restart the probiotic <laughs> activity and like a salad. But yeah. yeah, at this point I don't. So basically, what I do is I, I don't eat anything for a few days in a row, and then and then I eat normally, and then I don't eat don't eat anything for a few days in a row. And um, you know, it was it was tough in the beginning, but it's actually really pleasant. And there's all sorts of interesting science so about connecting it. Connecting the dots, we have about a minute and a half here. Mm -hmm. How long did it take for you to lose the 90 pounds you were talking about it through this process? Six months to lose 90 pounds. That's it. And then I've, and then I've had it, and then it's been 14 months or so of keeping it off. So I basically had over a year of maintaining, and it's effortless at this point. Like, it is not difficult. People say, oh, you must have, like, huge willpower. And I'm like, well, it's not unpleasant, so there's no willpower involved. It's a little bit hard getting started. But exercise kind of in there, too, or just plain old? I exercise now. I kickbox. I never used to. And the exercise had nothing to – like, the exercise has nothing to do with weight loss. Like, it's just – exercise doesn't make you lose weight. But it is important for other things. But I definitely – I think a mistake that people make is if they exercise to lose weight, that, that's bad. Does the diet have a name? It's just fasting. Just fasting. Yeah. Just eat a lot less, or is the – A lot less frequently. A lot less frequently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I don't advocate for it. I'm not a doctor, but I. I but I it have, worked for you. It worked for me, and I've learned a lot about it. And I'm, I'm kind of up on the science. And I do think, I do think that actually, in the next decade, multiple like multi-billion-dollar companies and technologies will come out of the science that we learned because of this. I don't think that anyone. I don't think that large numbers of people are going to fast. It's just way too like out of the cultural norm, and it's against all capitalistic uh, uh, pressures. So I don't actually think that that's going to be mainstream, but like the, the metabolic understanding that we get out of it will be used to make products that duplicate the effects that's already started. And I think those are going to be tremendously important products. Well, Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And for people that want to learn about you and also about All Turtles, where should they go? Uh, All-turtles.com. And uh, you can read about uh, us and about just what we think about uh, entrepreneurship, AI, and kind of the startup life. Great. Well, Phil, thanks again. Thanks, Rob. So that just about does it for today's show. Thank you all for joining us. You can follow Business Radio on Twitter at BizRadio132. And to follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc, and I'm on Twitter at Rob Connybeer. I'd also like to thank today's guests. We had Greg McAdoo and, once again, Phil Libin. Thanks also to our producer, Dana Cash, assistant producer, Charlene Goto, and our engineer, Jeff Simmons. And thank you for joining us for today's show. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.